available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello and welcome from me, Nigel Hewin, to this week's edition of Outlook, being recorded on Wednesday the 4th of October. Uh, and in today's programme, we're getting more from Paxton's Arboretum with Margaret. Uh, we'll be finding out why postcards were the uh, social media of their day. The Dambusters, of course, it's now a long time since they were uh, in action, but it's 80 years ago, and we're celebrating it with a bill telling us more about it. The Deep Space Ambassadors, which I know nothing about at all, but Sheila will t- tell you certainly as we go through. Another story from Hurdy-Gurdy at the turn of the 20th century. And finally, Dave does his final uh, visit to the Blind Games with Goalball. Uh, but all that, of course, is uh, later. We've got the... Uh, the, your, your news from the centre here, sport, your post bag, and of course, uh, um, I've forgotten what else. <laughs> Never mind. It, before we go, it's going to be Elaine and myself with a roundup of this week's news. Outlook News. A perfect storm of factors is said to be driving a housing crisis in Coventry where thousands have a recognised housing need. Hundreds more who are homeless or soon to be homeless are accessing support from Coventry City Council's housing service. Councillor David Welsh touched on the issue as he banged the drum for an application proposing 345 homes in Browns Lane, near a green space known as Cowden Wedge, at a recent planning committee meeting. In a follow-up interview, the city's housing boss reeled off figures that magnified the apparent scale of the city's housing dilemma. There are 8,100 households on HomeFinder, Councillor Welsh said. They've all got a recognised housing need. It might be overcrowding or it doesn't meet their need. 1,000 of those households have an urgent need to move. We've only less around a thousand properties in the last year in the city, so you've got a lot of people who need accommodation and there aren't enough properties for them to go to. There's been a failure of government to make sure we get the right kind of housing. Social housing and affordable housing more generally requires investment, but also needs the government to be serious about backing it up. They've essentially squeezed out social housing options in favour of other options such as first homes for young people, which is important. The bottom line is we do need to build more properties and properties people need. We have to address issues around older people wanting to downsize. We do need to market bigger houses for families to move into and attract money into the city. We do need accommodation for students, but then we need the option for them to stay if they want to, so we need different accommodation for them. The same with the younger people. There's got to be better options for people. In terms of housing, it's a crisis for every generation. The last few years we've seen a huge increase in domestic violence and family breakups. If one family breaks up, then you need two family homes. Things like that are driving the crisis we're in. It's the perfect storm, definitely. 
He said the number of urgent requests for help received by the service on a weekly basis was around 180, but that number appears to be growing. Last week, 205 households approached us for housing and homelessness advice, he said. These are people who are homeless or about to be homeless. The number of households joining Home Finder is around 135 a week. We are seeing more people in crisis and more people out on streets. A major new health service that will see an estimated 90,000 patients a year is due to open in Coventry in less than two years. Council has heard updates on the planned multi-million pound community diagnostic centre in the city at a meeting last week. The centre will open in the Paybody building by the city's health centre in Stony Stanton Road after the building is refurbished. The new hub will be partly funded by an £18.4 million cash injection for Coventry and Rugby awarded by the NHS last year to improve these services. Testing for heart and lung problems will will be prioritised at the centre. This is because heart failure and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease are known to be widespread in the local community, papers for the meeting said. The the site will also focus on capacity to diagnose cancers, including the ability to provide MRI, CT and ultrasound support. Coventry University is looking into setting up teaching and learning space on one of the building's floors, the report added. Some different ways of running the centre are being considered, including a one-stop clinic and letting local GPs run some tests there. The new facility will offer a significant increase in diagnostic capacity for the Coventry population and when completed will see around 90,000 patients per annum to the report. This increase in capacity will aid healthcare services to see and diagnose patients in a timely manner. Work is underway to make the diagnostic hub more available and accessible to people, Justine Richards from University Hospital Coventry and Warwickshire told the meeting. The building is considered likely to open before April 2025. A Coventry bus service is to be axed, as it does not offer value for money. Transport for West Midlands has revealed, so a number of bus services have been changed. As part of this, several services are being withdrawn. This includes the number 19, Tile Hill to Coventry, via Cannon Park Shopping Centre, Westwood Business Park. Transport for West Midlands says that the route is partially replaced by the number 2. It has added that the ring and ride service can also provide an alternative for those who are eligible. It is one of three services that are being axed across the region. Transport West Midlands has said it is due to low passenger numbers, high operating costs and changes in travel patterns, which means they no longer provide value for money for the taxpayer. Under the changes, as well as the three axe services, Transport West Midlands said that the vast majority of the region's 394 regular bus services remain unaffected. There will be changes to 32 services. Some will have timetable changes and some new operators. Pete Bond, Director of Integrated Travel Services for Transport for West Midlands, said, Buses are the backbone of our public transport network. They are also an essential part of plans to decarbonise our transport and reduce traffic congestion, improve our air quality 
and grow our region's economy. That is why it was imperative we both put the extra funding into preserving our network and review value for money for taxpayers on what we are providing already. Questions have been raised over Coventry City Council's paying thousands of pounds to fund two staff members' doctorates at a local university. The council has a contract worth £82,201 with Coventry University to deliver the qualification from 2021 to 2025, according to its public register. These doctorates of business administration are being done by the council's two most senior HR officers, the council told a meeting last week. Labour councillor Ed Rowan said, I'm aware the two most senior HR officers had the opportunity to do a doctorate paid fully by the council. How does anyone else at the council get the opportunity to do that? He asked where the money is coming from for the £80,000 qualification as it can't be funded by an apprenticeship levy. The funding is also worth more than the entire corporate learning and development budget for this year of 59000 What's the benefit to the council for staff to do a doctorate? Councillor Ruane uh, added in the questions put to brief Chief Operating Officer Barry Hasty. I passionately believe in lifelong learning, but is that opportunity being provided to other staff? In his answer to Councillor Ruane, Mr Hasty did not deny the council is paying for this, but said he was not aware of anyone being denied the opportunity. He said any learning and development comes from the appraisal process or desire to develop some areas. The Council's Director of HR, Susanna Newing, and the Head of People, Grace, uh, sorry, the Head of People, Grace Haynes, are the state staff members taking the qualifications. Both have doctorates at Coventry University starting in 2021 listed on their public LinkedIn profiles. Asked by the local democracy reporting service about the £80,000 funding for the pair's qualifications, Coventry City Council claimed it would bring the organisation benefits. The doctorates are on how the council can improve its diversity and inclusion so it has a more representative workforce and on trade union relationships. Both members of staff must pay the investment back if they leave the council within three years and do the work in their own time. Coventry bin workers are set to be balloted for more strike action. Unite has announced that it has given notice to Coventry City Council that it will ballot 55 refuse workers for strike action and action short of a strike. The union has said that the voting will open a week on Tuesday, October the 10th, and the ballot is set to close on Tuesday, October the 24th. It says it has no options but to open the ballot amid claims of significant cuts to the workers' terms and conditions. Should the strike action be agreed, they will join more than 40 HGV refuse lorry drivers employed by the council who have already voted for strike action. The news about the strike ballot comes after the council has said that it could face bankruptcy next year. Unite General Secretary Sharon Graham said, Coventry Council is once again targeting the terms and conditions of frontline workers. Our members are on the streets every week during heat waves and hailstorms. The Labour Control Council appears to have learned nothing from the 2022 strike. 
If another strike goes ahead, residents will only have their councillors to blame. Walkouts hit the city for months last year as HGV refuse lorry drivers went on strike over a pay row. Now the union says that the alleged changes to work and conditions could see the refuse workers head to the picket lines. The city council has warned that it needs more funding from government or else it faces heading down the same path trodden by neighbouring Birmingham City Council. That saw them issue a 114 notice to declare bankruptcy, meaning they will only be able to offer some essential services. Construction is set to begin on new specialist school site in Coventry as a, as a sneak peek has been granted into what's expected to, it to look like. It's been seven years since pupils moved out of Woodland School and former pupils were invited back for a one final look earlier this year ahead of a building's demolition. Last year, planning permission was granted for the City Council to transform the Broadlane site into a special school. It's been confirmed that construction will now start next month. Woodland School closed in 2016 as part of a merger with Tile Hill Wood School to create West Coventry Academy. Officials said at the time that low pupil numbers was the main factor behind the decision, and ideas for the site's future initially included an education sports village or even housing. But it was decided that the site would be best used to address a growing need for special needs school provision. Once complete, the new site will see the specialist provision that is currently delivered by Woodfield Special School brought together from two separate sites to offer additional provision to the city. The refurbished buildings will provide a new home for both the primary and secondary phases as well as provide some much needed additional places. The council says there continues to be a growing demand for places for children with special educational needs and disabilities, including provision for children aged 5 to 16 with complex social, emotional and behavioural difficulties. It's hoped that bringing the schools together will make the improved facilities which will meet the needs of children in the 21st century. The former boys' own secondary school will be partially demolished refurbished and reconfigured as part of the work. Although Grade 2 listed, planning permission has been granted to demolish those buildings that are in poor condition. This means that the council can preserve Coventry's heritage while providing some of the city's most vulnerable pupils with modern facilities. The demolition of the buildings is expected to begin in October 23 and be completed by the end of December this year. The contract also includes the internal strip-out of the buildings that will be refurbished, which is expected to be completed by the end of February 24. The aim is for the new development to open by September 2025. A planning inquiry to settle the future of Coventry Stadium has been adjourned until November. The inquiry has been paused to resolve a matter as to whether the NHS should receive funding if houses are built there. The now derelict home of the Coventry Bees Speedway team and stock car racing is the subject of plans from site owners Brandon Estates to replace it with 124 homes, a 3G football pitch and a pavilion. Planning permission was unanimously refused by Rugby Borough Council's planning committee in November 2022, prompting this appeal, which is being heard by National Inspector Helen Hockenhall.
Inquiries are the most formal procedure by which planning appeals are decided, with legal representatives cross-examining parties and expert witnesses to investigate evidence. The final decision is considered and published in writing, sometimes weeks after the end of the inquiry, and it is a process that places all planning matters in the hands of the inspector. Part of the process is ensuring that all of the relevant details and conditions are worked out in the event of the appeal being successful. If it is not, they become irrelevant. A major element is the Section 106 Agreement, which lays out how much money the developer must contribute to various services locally, including infrastructure, highways, recreational facilities, education, health and affordable housing. University Hospitals Commentary and Warwickshire NHS Trust has requested £133,754 in respect of this application to cater for the increased number of residents. It resulted in the inquiry being adjourned until November when it is due to reconvene at Rugby Borough Council's headquarters to discuss all matters related to Section 106 funding. A severe fire broke out in a high-rise flat block in Coventry. Firefighters spent several hours tackling the blaze at Samuel Vale House in Radford. Smoke could be seen billowing into the sky as the blaze took hold at the residential building on St Nicholas Street. It is understood residents were evacuated and taken to Coventry Central's Seventh-day Adventist Church. Staffordshire and West Midlands Fire Control said they started to receive multiple calls at 12 minutes past four last Saturday. A total of 50 firefighters responded, with the first crew arriving within five minutes of being mobilised. Firefighters wearing breathing apparatus successfully extinguished the fire, which was confirmed to be out by 5.40pm. Two people were led to safety from inside the building, said Westminster's fire, fire service. Coventry Northwest Labour MP Taiwo Hawatami thanked firefighters who responded so quickly to tackle the fire at Samuelville House. Officials are now investigating the cause of the blaze, which sparked the huge emergency response. Subsequently, investigators have determined the cause of a severe blaze that was an electric bike battery being left on charge. A gang of vehicle thieves who targeted houses in Coventry, Solihull and Warwickshire before bragging about their crimes on TikTok have been jailed. The group of six made up of four men and two teenagers stole 45 vehicles worth over a million pounds broadcasting their crimes on TikTok. Between t March 2022 and May 2023, the thieves stole keys to high-value cars like BMWs, Audis and Mercedes, targeting houses in Coventry, Warwickshire, Solihull, Birmingham and Stourbridge. The group, all from Birmingham, filmed their crimes and posted them on social media sites. When officers examined their phones, they found recordings of the burglaries being committed videos of the cars stolen and internet searches of their registration numbers to get their values. In one TikTok video posted in February 2023, the group were wearing masks and breaking into a property before stealing a Hyundai, 
and then posting a video of hitting speeds over 100 miles per hour. Two of the gang, both 16 years old at the time, were arrested in May 2023 after someone reported a car with those inside it acting suspiciously on Groveley Lane in Birmingham. When the car was searched, they found the pepper spray, balaclavas and another set of keys belonging to a stolen BMW. The gang were eventually arrested the following month. Mobile phones were seized and when examined were found to be filled with videos of the gang at burglary scenes and driving the stolen vehicles. One of the gang, Josh Reed, was found to have a distinctive tattoo on his left hand that matched TikTok videos he'd filmed of himself. They all pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit burglary and were sentenced at Birmingham Crown Court last week. Reed, aged 25, was sentenced to four years and six months, while Cody Morgan, also 25, was jailed for three years and four months. Connor O'Keefe Clancy, 19, was sentenced to five years, while Ryan Allen, aged 21, got four years and three months. One boy, aged 16, was sentenced to four years and six months, and a second teenager, also aged 16, received a two-year youth rehabilitation order and will be tagged for one year receiving an overnight curfew. A new addition could be set to come to Coventry's West Orchard Shopping Centre in part of the Old Debenhams unit. A planning application has been submitted to Coventry City Council asking for permission to install louvers. On closer inspection, the louvers are for signage for the job shop. The application itself states insta installation of louvers on car park facing elevation as part of proposed new ventilation system. It adds installation of a new signage for the job shop. The job shop is run by the City Council and is currently based in Bulliard. The whole Bulliard area has been undergoing a huge regeneration and the application indicates that the job centre styled shop could be heading to the city's main shopping centre. It states that the proposal is for a, current, for a current vacant unit which was previously part of the Debenham store that previously occupied large parts of the shopping centre. The job shop provides new access to work, education or training opportunities as well as training and advice. The minor planning application is now being looked at by the planners at the City Council. Police have executed a warrant as a premises suspected of being involved in modern-day slavery in Coventry. Officers recently raided a site in Foles Hill. Police from the Serious Organised Crime and Exploitation team visited a site on Foles Hill Road. A warrant was carried out together with the British Red Cross, the Medale Trust, Coventry City Council and the West Midlands Anti-Slavery Network. Two people were identified as being of concern, but were confirmed as working legally. So they were returned to the site shortly afterwards, said West Midlands Police. Officers say investigations remain ongoing to find out if more potential victims are involved. A spokesman for Coventry Police said, we are continuing our investigation to find out if more potential victims are involved. Modern day slavery involves people being trafficked to the UK and being forced to work illegally. Often, 
This is in the form of low or unpaid work, such as car washing, but can also range from supervising cannabis farms to prostitution. We continue to carry out warrants and take action against people trafficking and modern-day slavery. Magic was in the air in Coventry last weekend as the festival of witches and pagans returned to the city. Over 2,000 people gathered at the Heart of England Conference Centre for the event, which featured a witch's ball, a Viking battle, feast nights and opening and closing rituals. The festival also included a special ritual in honour of Coventry legend Lady Godiva. This latest event also welcomed Druids for the first time, including one of the country's most prominent members, TV presenter and author Christopher Hughes. Christopher worked for His Majesty's Coroner for over 30 years and is now a Welsh-language television presenter and actor. Other activities included healing and self-love rituals, as well as workshops such as spellcraft, wand-making, crystals and flower crowns. Festival goers also enjoyed yoga and meditation sessions and family entertainment. The Festival of Witches and Pagans was first launched in 2021 by a coven from Coventry and was set up to remove taboos around the practice. It has since grown to become a twice-yearly event. The festival has now announced its next visit to Coventry will be on May the 11th and 12th. Almost 1,000 unexplained objects have been spotted above the UK in the last two and a half years, including 13 in Coventry and Warwickshire. That includes five sightings in 2021, six last year and two between January and May this year. The new figures have been revealed amid NASA's claims that it simply can't explain some UFO sightings. The Space Agency, which has last week celebrated the return to Earth of a space capsule carrying NASA's first asteroid samples, has published a report into hundreds of unidentified flying objects, or UAPs as it calls them, which are Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena. Releasing the findings, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said, the NASA Independent Study Team did not find any evidence that UAPs have an extraterrestrial origin. But we don't know what they are. That's why I'm announcing that NASA has appointed a NASA Director of UAP Research. They are being tasked with developing and overseeing the implementation of NASA's vision for UAP research. He said the agency wants to shift the conversation about UAP from sensationalism to science and addresses some of the stigma around UFO sightings. He added that new science techniques and artificial intelligence were needed to better understand them. The NASA intervention comes as almost 1,000 unexplained objects have been documented in the skies above the UK between January 21 and May this year by the UFO spotter website UFO Identified. Outlook News. Um, 
So, uh, that uh, completes the roundup of this week's news from Elaine and myself. Now, announcements. We have two this time, that's unusual. Uh, and it's now more dark than light, uh, because sunrise is at 7.12 in the morning, but sunset is at 20 minutes to 7 in the evening. I have an announcement from the Torch Trust for the Blind. Uh, their next meeting is going to be held on Saturday, October the 28th at 3pm in Methodist Church, Earlston. And everyone, of course, is welcome with excellent afternoon tea at the end of it. Uh, and if you want to know more about it, contact Nigel Sullivan on 077 and he says, P.S., the November Torch meeting will be on November the 25th. So that's your announcements for this week. And now I am pleased to welcome back from his poorly sick bed with COVID, uh, Hugh, to tell you all about the centre. It's been a while, hasn't it? There's no <laughs> doubt about it. I was off for a couple of weeks with the, with the dreaded COVID. First time I've had it. Is it really? Three oh. and a half years. You avoided uh, it. And I'd avoided it. And I was getting ready to, you know, offer my blood to yes. scientific research. Yeah. And also gloat about the fact you hadn't had it. Yes. <laughs> well, I've been, I've been gloating for a long time. And, uh, and ah. I, can, I can gloat no more. No, yeah. pride uh, comes before the fall. It, it does. Yes, it, it does. does. Um, uh, and then um, last week I was uh, at a conference conference in Birmingham, um, Visionary, which is a, mm. sort of an umbrella organisation for um, sight loss charities just like ours, mm-hmm. um, and absolutely uh, really great conference to go to, so uh, giving me lots of ideas and um, a bit more, you know, some renewed energy to and carry you, on. you know then that there's other people doing similar. Absolutely, all, o- all over the country. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, we had people uh, from that conference uh, from um, Inverness down to... Mm. Um, uh, Somewhere Ooh. in Cornwall. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like, you know, it's, it's usually somewhere in Cornwall. Somewhere in Cornwall. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so there we are. Now, um, like I th- we, well, we've been asking this for a few weeks, but we've not had a tremendous amount of response. It has to be said um, that we want to set up a list of trusted traders um, and. What we would really like is your input um, for any uh, plumbers, electricians, um, uh, uh, roofers, anybody you know who can who can who does work handyman, handyman, yes, gardeners, yes. these sorts of people um, who uh, you've used and you've found to be good. Uh, we would really like to know about them uh, because uh, it's through recommendations that we can. Um, uh, because we get quite a lot of uh, requests from people saying, oh, do you know someone mm, who? Mm. And uh, it would be really good to have a, a good quality list. You know, once you supply their names, we will vet them. We will make sure that, we, you know, that we've had a chat with all of them. Uh, but uh, mm. we would like to be able to do that. So please, 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 uh, can you call reception 024 and give us your best tips on that. No, I had an email this morning from Synaptic. Now, Synaptic, uh, some of you may know, uh, makes uh, mobile phones. Well, it actually uses Samsung mobile phones, but it puts um, uh, some different software on the top that is really quite easy for visually impaired people to use. Uh, You've got uh, voice... uh, 
there's uh, voice commands and um, well, not voice commands. It te- it talks to you. Voice you recognition. Yeah. Well, it, no, mm. it presses a button. You press a button on it, or somewhere on the screen, it tells you where you're where you're oh. uh, where you're pressing, and it got very easy to follow. If you've got a bit of sight, mm. it's got very large um, icons on the screens. Anyway. It's not the cheapest thing. I mean, they're good. They're really good for many people, and it's a very good way for a lot of people to be able to access their mobile phones, uh, whatever level of sight you've got. But anyway, they've got an autumn offer. So if you were thinking of getting a synaptic phone or upgrading uh, your um, existing synaptic phone, um, if you do this month... Uh, and that goes to the 31st of October, so just the October, um, they'll give you a free gift. And actually, these free gifts are pretty good. So you can get headphones or earbuds. They're like uh, these little things that stick, in, stick inside your ears, which are very good. They're rechargeable things. The quality I mean, of the hearing is exceptionally good, actually, isn't it? The they are very yeah. good, yeah. I mean, you know, the thing is with earbuds kind of easy to lose uh, (laughs) unless you're really really you know on them but anyway um, but uh, yeah the the headphones a bit less easy to uh, lose but also very good Um, and then or you could have a synaptic keyboard Uh, so some people who you know who are touch typers you can type into your phone it's a little um, portable uh, keyboard that uh, will type into your phone and then with that you also get a bar of chocolate. Ooh. Um, synaptic chocolate. <laughs> um, you get a stylus pen. And basically, this is basically so you don't have to touch the screen with your fingers. You can use a, it's a pen with a sort of squidgy, squidgy mm. button on one end that you can uh, use to uh, interact with your phone. Uh, and a screen cleaning cloth. cloth and that uh, all adds up to over 70 quid's worth of stuff. So, you know, I'm, I'm really happy to sort Do of... Do we know what price the phones are, roughly? Well, well they, they range from um, about £200 right. uh, for the mm. cheapest ones yeah. up to well over 1000 for the more expensive yeah, ones. One um, yeah. but, but sort of, a, a, you know, mid-range ones are about 400 mm. uh, You can get in for as well as 200 if you're... If you're really yeah, absolutely, yeah. For, yeah. for something that doesn't have internet, really. So, right. uh, But uh, don't quote me on that. No, quite. You know, if, it's just if a you, guide. If you're guide. interested, come and ask and we'll yeah. find out the details. Because <laughs> the prices do change. I'm sure. Um, so if you're uh, in the midst of a transaction with uh, Synaptic or uh, you would like us to help, then do please get in contact. Uh, but if, you're in, if, if you want to uh, deal with it all yourself, you have to use a voucher code when you, uh, when you talk, to, uh, talk to Synaptic, and that is Autumn2370. And all, all one word, all smushed together, and that would uh, that will get you your free gifts. But anyway, we'll work on that. Now, um, cooking has been in a little bit of a hiatus uh, for a few months because Roop um, has been uh, um, away in foreign climes uh, for an extended period. She's back now, uh, and we have a little bit of space uh, for the group that is now going to be starting next Thursday. Uh, so if you're interested in joining the cooking group, let us know. I think we've got one space left. So that's first come, first serve. The 13th or something. 13th of October. Yeah, yeah that sounds about, sounds about yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so if you're interested, give us a call. Uh, but you could also put your name down on the waiting list uh, if for uh, consideration uh, in the next um, block of sessions, uh, which is going to be after Christmas. Although there are already a couple of names still on there, so you still got to still got to get your name in. Still got to get your name in. 
Now, uh, I'm announcing a theatre trip down to the Criterion. Uh, so, we are going to go and see The Welkin by Lucy Kirkwood. Rural Suffolk, 1759. As the country waits for Halley's Comet, Sally Poppy is sentenced to hang for a heinous murder. When she claims to be pregnant, a jury of 12 matrons are taken from their housework to decide whether she's telling the truth or simply trying to escape the noose. With only midwife Lizzie Luke prepared to defend the girl and a mob baying for blood outside, the matrons wrestle with their new authority and the devil in their midst. So Lucy Kirkwood's play uh, premiered at the National Theatre in London in January 2020, so it's still pretty new, um, and uh, it featured Maxine Peake amongst other people, and it's been described as brilliant, brave, bold and intelligent. It is, for all the seriousness of its subject, often very funny, yet at the close profoundly moving. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that, and I'll be looking forward to seeing that with uh, you guys in tow. Uh, I'm proposing Wednesday the 25th of October uh, to go there so what we'd do is we'd arrange a touch tour for uh, 5 o'clock in the afternoon come back up here for fish and chips or whatever as per uh, and then go back down to the theatre for 7.30 uh, tickets are £12.50 uh, the, plus, uh, plus fish and chips plus fish and chips yep. which you'll pay for on the day uh, and it depends how extravagant you feel as to whether you have um, uh, a large piece of fish for basically the price of your house <laughs> or uh, a smaller piece of fish mm. for about £3.50. Anyway, so it uh, doesn't seem to be much difference. No. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, uh, so if you could let Heather know or Carol on reception, uh, 024 7621 whether you'd like to come. Uh, the bus, as usual, uh, £6 return. Uh, and I hope uh, you know to have a number of you there. Uh, I'll try and get a couple more volunteers to come along on that one as well, because it's uh, if we've got lots of people. Because I think uh, um, last time it was a few, only a few of us, and it was still a bit of a challenge to manage it just on my own. Uh, now I'm very pleased to say that uh, uh, Chris and Claire are back in our midst next week after their adventures in Australia. Uh, so uh, Claire will be going back on the, uh, should be on the buses. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know, we've uh, we've been very fortunate to have Carl uh, basically taking over um, what she's done you know, the whole time that she's been away, which has been an absolute godsend. Uh, so thank you, Carl. Uh, but yeah, so Claire will be back on the buses, and Carl will be going back to doing. Um, uh, to doing the maintenance stuff and everything uh, and supporting Claire along the way. Uh, that will be fantastic as of next week. Now, um, last Sunday we had a volunteers party to say thank you to um, our many wonderful, terrific uh, volunteers. Uh, but it also doubled as um, a retirement party and the retirement uh, of our very own and very dear Rosie. Yep. Um, many of you will know that uh, Rosie is not very well at the moment and um, so she she uh, has formally uh, retired from the charity. You bring Chick on, of course, is she? she? Yes, <laughs> okay. to her. Okay, well, be, <laughs> be gentle with the lady. I'm, I'm being very <laughs> gentle. Yes. I mean, she, she, she deserves, uh, deserves a bit of rest time, doesn't oh, she? Oh, gosh, absolutely. Yes. So, 
Um, so, uh, so uh, you know, Rosie, uh, along with Tricia, you know, founded the charity uh, 13 mm. and a half years is ago. Mm. It is, yeah. And um, the place is absolutely infused with mm. uh, with the spirit of Rosie. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we will be, you know, very um, sorry to lose her. But anyway, so, um, you know, we will say thank you. Um, to Rosie and send her all our love and best wishes. Uh, yes, and uh, yes, so she's retiring and uh, she's asked very, very, uh, which we are absolutely delighted to do is when we finally get our cafe in here at the centre, uh, it's going to be called Rosie's Cozy Cafe. Oh, good. Excellent. Mm. Which okay. sounds yeah. like the title of a Richard and Judy summer bestseller, which is guaranteed it will be a hit. Absolutely. Yes. And, why, yes. and why not? We'll make yes. sure that we get it. How is the cafe coming on? You may not ask, because uh, there's nothing here. In order for us to get that far, we need significant funds, significant funds um, right. from the National Lottery. Right. Uh, and that's a, a, it's a, that's a, 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 a steep mountain to climb, and course, we have yes. we have other hills to between mm-hmm. here and there, <laughs> so ranges of hills. I think yes, actually, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's it for this week, and uh, we'll be back with you next week. next week with any luck. Yes, and uh, COVID staying away. Yes, I, I do hope so. <laughs> you, I, want I, second, I, you want a second dose now, do you? I, 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 I hope you realise that this, like, this deep resonant voice now yes, that I have is as entirely as, as a result of COVID. <laughs> so there we are. Excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Look forward to seeing you next week. Cheers. And now Sarah's here again with another roundup of sport over the last week. Outlook Sport. Hello there, folks. It's super excited, Sarah, and I'm celebrating. Gosh, there's a lot of mixed initials there. And I'll tell you more about that later, but I think you can probably guess if you're a regular listener. But I'll start off, as usual, with the football. Now, fresh from their draw with Huddersfield, where, if you may remember, I've said Huddersfield scored with literally the last kick of the ball on Monday, we headed off to Loftus Road, the home of Queen's Park Rangers. And guess what? We conceded again with almost the last kick of the ball. But the only difference was we'd already scored three goals. So that was the final score. Queen's Park Rangers 1, Coventry City 3. Now the great thing was, or I think it was good, Ellis Sims scored two of the goals. Now, Ellis was the player that we signed from Everton and a lot of the local fans had really been on his back because he hadn't delivered the goals. But he scored twice, with the second goal being made by Josh Eccles. So, well done, our lads. And I know you've got a midweek match on Wednesday, but this tape will be, this program will have been recorded by then. So I'll I'll report on that next week. Now, going down to the divisions, 
Leamington travelled away to Royston Town, who you may remember last week, Nuneaton beat at home, but Leamington lost 1-0. Oh, well. Meanwhile, there was a battle for local supremacy going on in Stratford when Stratford entertained Nuneaton. And Nuneaton won. So the final score there was Stratford nil, Nuneaton three. So well done, you borough. Now, I'm going to talk about rugby union, but I just want to say how very sad I am, genuinely, to hear about Jersey Reds going into administration and basically closing. You may remember that they have always been one of Coventry's fierce rivals and we hadn't got a very good record against them. But they've run out of money, so they've had to close. And I'm really sad because this is the way too many of our rugby clubs seem to be going. What with Wasps and Worcester Warriors. Anyway, Coventry are very much well and truly playing. And they took on Nottingham in their fourth match of the Premiership Cup. Now, Nottingham had lost on six previous visits to Butts Park. But very sadly, it ended up as a 33-all draw. Now, there is only one team makes it out of the group stage to the next round. And this lays on a really competitive match away to Gloucester on Saturday. Gloucester are another Premier team. But we've just got to remember who we beat in the first match. Saracens. So what, what hope for Gloucester? One can only hope. Meanwhile, in the World Championships, the only one of our home nations to carry on to play this weekend in France was Scotland. There are five teams in each group, so one team, in turn, has to have a week off. And this week, coincidentally, it was England, Wales and Ireland's turn. But what a result for Scotland. Romania nil, Scotland 84. And this lays on next weekend a vital match against Ireland with only two teams getting out of the group and also in their group being South Africa, the previous winners. Now, I'll tell you more next week about the Gymnastics World Championships, which is currently happening in Antwerp. But the headline that really took my eye on the BBC website was that Simone Biles has landed a double-pipe Yukashenko vault. Now, I'm sure that's very impressive, and I'd like to audio describe it. But I haven't a clue what one is. But it's all the more remarkable because just two years ago she had to stand down from international competition 
because she was suffering for what has now been diagnosed as the twisties. It's a kind of mental health issue which affects some gymnasts and it makes them completely lose their spatial awareness. So can you imagine doing a double pike anything over a vault when you've got that and can't fathom out where you are? No, I can't either. Anyway, another thing to say about the lovely lass Simone Biles, who is American, by the way, is that she's the oldest competitor in the competition at the ripe old age of 26. <laughs> I'm sorry, ladies, but I think we've missed our gymnastics peak. And she is currently the leader. And can I just say at this point, I'm very sorry if any of you can pick up the sound of a cat purring, but I have been joined on the sofa by Emily. And now, drum roll for golf. And my reason for being super excited and celebrating Europe, drum roll, have won back the Ryder Cup. Now, the Ryder Cup is the team event between Team Europe and Team America, or Team the States, anyway. And I'm pleased to report, not only did we win, but we led throughout. At no stage were America ever ahead. In fact, at the end of the first morning, Europe were leading 4-0. I mean, we did let America get a few points, but the the final result was Europe 16 and a half to the US 11 and a half. Going into the singles, though, it really was very exciting and quite nerve-wracking because we gradually saw how it was going and at one stage Europe there were five of the holes scoring showing as blue meaning Team Europe were ahead but five showing as red Team USA ahead the other two being in yellow meaning they were being shared at the time but then too many of the blues suddenly turned to red as America were winning holes and the commentator said oh are we going to do it are we going to do it can we convert any now we had to get to 14 and a half in order to win the Ryder Cup the states would only have had to win 14 because they currently hold it and we got sort of almost stuck on 14 one match went red, two matches went red, three matches went red and then all of a sudden the youngest British player, Tommy Fleetwood, had got a putt to share and he sank it and you have never heard so much cheering 
and hysterical flag waving and chanting. I mean, the Europeans were chanting the ole, 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 ole. All the US were meriting was USA, USA. So on the chanting alone, it's got to be victory to Team Europe. Anyway, the eventual score, as I said before, 16.5 points to 11.5. Now, just a few points to note. You may have heard the saga of the player I'm calling Mr. Kapoff. He's American. And he is furious that the, the players are not paid for playing in the Ryder Cup. There is no money involved at all, as I understand it. The only thing that is involved is a gold trophy. And it's sort of historic. It's always been like that. And my gosh, don't the Europeans fight for their place. Anyway, the player I shall call Mr. Kapoff wanted to show his opposition by not wearing his baseball cap. In other words, keeping his cap off. Now, he sank quite a good putt, one has to say, on the close of the second day to win the match. And all of his team who were gathered round him, and most importantly his caddy, took their caps off and were waving them in celebration. But unfortunately... Mr. Kapoff's caddy literally was waving it about a foot from our player, Rory McElroy, who still had to putt for a chance to share the match. Anyway, suffice to say, McElroy missed, but with all the hurrah going on, it's not surprising. And, shall we say, was not best pleased. Anyway, the boys literally took it out to the car park but apparently McElroy was quickly marched into an awaiting car and driven away. Now, as for the clothing, oh, yes, we have to mention the clothing. Well, I do think the States have got the best clothes on the first day. They were in rather nice red and white or, the, or sometimes blue and white hoops t-shirts and they were much nicer I thought than the Europeans which were sort of mid blue plain jobby but I have to say on the closing singles the mid blue jobby set off against grey trousers looked really superior for the Europeans compared to the Americans in their bright razzmatazz red white and blues but, of course, the talisman for the whole competition was the late, much-missed Severiano Ballesteros. Sevi played in so many riders, and he embodied everything that was great about the competition. Mr. Kapoff, you should be ashamed. But finally, I just want to throw this in. This is Ryder Cup related. The commentators on the first day 
were talking about the people, the, the Americans basically, who'd come dressed in fancy dress. And they were saying, oh yeah, seen a couple of hot dogs and a hamburger and some chickens. And the other commentator said, no, they're not chickens, they're bald eagles, the symbol of the state. Well, perhaps chicken is more appropriate. Anyway, that has been your sport. You know, I really think Sarah must have a radio, television and iPad on all at the same time to make sure she doesn't miss anything. However, from sport, we now move to your sporting outlook, Postbag with Dave. This is Postbag. Discussion. Hello there, a big welcome to your postbag. We begin with a reminder about having your winter protection against flu and also COVID, which is still around. Here's Edwina. Hi everybody, it's Edwina. I just wanted to give you a reminder. You must book your COVID jab. And also your flu jab, if you do have it, to keep well through the coming winter months. Take care, everybody. Bye. Thank you, Edwina. I received a text message from the doctor's surgery about booking for my flu and COVID jabs. How does your doctor give you important information? Graham Whale is hoping the council will be more helpful in making it safer for visually impaired people near his favourite park. It was interesting to hear the item on Spencer Park. Uh, it is my favourite park actually in the city. You'd be surprised how quiet it is in Spencer Park considering that it's right in the heart of the city. However, I do have an issue with the shared cycle and pedestrian facility where the council have whipped up the tactile markings. They've widened the track, but uh, they've introduced what you could probably call a shared space principle, which they claim is safer. Um, we talked, the Coventry branch of the NFB talked to Richard Smith last year actually, who's the council's advisor on cycling and pedestrian issues, we suggested a compromise. It seems a bit strange, a compromise on what is already a compromise, but one thing's for sure, they weren't going to put the tactile markings back in. So we suggested they put a, a guidance path along the side of the track so that these visually impaired people could keep out of the way of the cyclists. There are two issues. One issue, the council wanted it on the right-hand side, walking towards the city centre, which means we could get our cane stuck in the fence. I have first-hand experience of that sort of thing. And we wanted it on the park side on the left, even though there are a few trees which jut out into the uh, path a little bit. We did feel that would be safer. The main issue is finance money. They've run out of money for the scheme. So uh, that's how the situation was left. We did go on to talk about other cycling and pedestrian uh, issues around the city. In fact, uh, it was quite a useful meeting actually. I won't go into detail now, but it was quite a useful meeting, even though we never really resolved the issue over Spencer Park. 
Frankie Graham I did meet Richard after cycling on the ring road with our youngest son Graham on Beryl Hire Bikes at Cyclefest on the evening of Motorfest. Julia has this latest report on tandem riding with Vista. It's entitled Three Tandem Rides and Ten Pints of Gin. The first was with Chris Homer as pilot and we were the leaders so we got lost. We eventually got to the Red Lion in Knoll and we had several gin and tonics. We rode around in circles until Chris got the courage to check the sat-nav and got back to his oar centre about three days later. The next ride was to Hatton and I took Steve to the Cases Altered where I drank a bottle of Malibu and Steve downed a quart of Jack Daniels. The last ride was to Corley, and on our way to the Red Lion, my lace got caught in the pedal. My shoe got tighter and tighter, and my face got bluer and bluer, till I shouted, Stop! And everyone started panicking, and they pulled my trainer off and untied me. We had ten pints of Guinness to calm our nerves, but nobody got arrested. I look forward to our next tandem season next year, and I'm already in training with a bottle of gin every day. Lots of love, Julia. Thank you, Julia. That seemed a frightening moment when the lace got tied up in the pedal. I'm glad you were all right. Myself and the members of the Macula Society had a few moments of concern when an old Harrington coach we were in was struggling to get up a hill. The people on the coach and the driver were really friendly though and I sat next to William who was really interesting. William told me about being on security at the G8 summit in Edinburgh in Scotland in 2005. But the all, all the world leaders had a day's sightseeing and William had the job of showing them around Stirling Castle. My first job was to go round with presidents, premiers, prime ministers round Stirling Castle. And one guy who I was asked to look after well was a certain President Putin of Russia. <laughs> he didn't speak English, I didn't speak Russian, but we had an interpreter. He didn't say all that much to me, really, he was a very quiet guy. You know, he was an interpreter and said, where are we going? And I said, we're going around the castle, you follow me. And we all followed, we all followed me around the castle. You yeah. like the castle. Okay, so what happened when you spoke to George W. Bush around the castle? He just said, hi. I said, will you follow me and everybody else follow me around as we're going around the castle now, please? And uh, I said, yeah, you lead on. And that's what we... They all did. We all followed me around. The presidents, the premiers, the prime ministers just followed us. Me and me, uh, one of my colleagues, around the castle. Other world leaders that were on the tour were Chirac of France and the leader of Japan, possibly Emperor Akihito, son of Hirohito. He invited William for a meal afterwards. And notably, the only world leader who didn't talk to William was the host of the G8 summit, Tony Blair. I went and reported on a world event myself recently. That was the World Blind Games held in Birmingham and also Coventry. It got hardly any publicity, so it was quite exclusive to you. I found it exciting 
and particularly the gold ball at the CBS Arena. Were you excited about the World Blind Games though? Let, let us know. At the opening ceremony at the Birmingham Symphony Hall, the daughter of Ravi Shankar, who taught George Harrison to play the sitar, was the leader and played the sitar in the Inner Vision Orchestra. Graham Whale told me he preferred her sister, and he goes on to tell you about her. Recently, Dave Monks commented on the daughter of Ravi Shankar, and uh, I that I preferred her sister. People must have heard of the name Lorna Jones. No, she doesn't bear the family name. Neither does the music she plays have any resemblance with the music which the family traditionally play. She is a very renowned jazz singer and pianist. And though she has recorded with her sister, which is quite interesting, I've heard short extracts from the album, I'd like to hear the whole thing actually. She also did an interesting duet with Tony Bennett on his album where he did duets with various artists. Um, the one he did with Lady Gaga, the ladies are trancing to get all the publicity at the time because it was Lady Gaga. But the track he recorded with Lorna Jones, in my view, was far superior. Thank you, Graham. I looked her up on YouTube and there was half an album by her she is beautiful with long black hair with a lovely expressive tone to her voice. Tell us about a singer you like. Finally, Graham has these thoughts on street parking. Yes, parking on pavements is a problem. Uh, the road I live in, uh, it is a problem. Fortunately, I'm the end house and most of my excursions in the big wide world are up the main road, are down the main road and I don't usually have any reason to go along my side street. But um, it, it is a problem. The problem is the households have more than one car as the children grow up, and they've got nowhere to put them. The problem is some of the cars that are parked in this street uh, don't live in the street. The people um, live on the main road, but they don't like leaving the cars on the main road. A way round that is to introduce some residence parking scheme whereby uh, you display a, a, a ticket in the window to say you've got permission to park there. Uh, that might control it to a certain extent. But uh, the thing is, um, if they leave the cars further out into the uh, side road, uh, then traffic isn't going to be able to get by because it's quite narrow. And uh, we have our bins missed quite often, well not quite often, but from time to time because the lorries can't get round because of the parked cars. But I can't think of a satisfactory solution to it. Um, it's going to be difficult to introduce a blanket ban on pavement parking. I think they're going to have to take into account the individual circumstances of each street. And I know it has been suggested having uh, car parking areas for residents to park their cars. But uh, these, we're talking about built-up estates here, built-up areas. Where are you going to find a space to build a car park to uh, park, your, park your cars? So, yeah, it's not an easy problem to solve, and I certainly haven't got any satisfactory solutions to it. Thank you, Graham. Tell us your experiences and thoughts on street parking. I rode a barrel bike on Saturday. 
It told me on my phone that they were going to be introducing e-scooters. Any thoughts on that? And as Sheila asked you on last week's Outlook, tell us your memories of Old Coventry, your favourite tipple, and are you afraid of spiders? I'll leave you with this thought. At the nostalgic singing group I belong to on Wednesday mornings, I was told that a woman was caught driving while knitting. The police car drove up alongside and said, Pull over! She replied by saying, No, it's a pair of socks! Thank you for your messages this week, and please let's hear from you next week. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. Uh, Dave, with your postbag for this week. Now, last week, Margaret started memories based on Paxton's Arboretum in London Road Cemetery, and continues this week with another memory taken from the Heritage Park Times Historic Coventry of 2023. John Bailey Shelton. Regarded as Coventry's first archaeologist, Shelton was a Nottinghamshire-born farm labourer, who came to Coventry in his early twenties to work as a drayman for the railway. In 1907 he started his own haulage business in Little Park Street and while laid up in hospital with a broken leg, discovered a fascination with Coventry's medieval history and archaeology. During the wholesale city centre demolitions of the 1930s, He was to be seen constantly clambering around building excavations and the objects he collected then became the basis of his own Benedictine Museum, which he opened at his home in Little Park Street. Shelton was bombed out of his home during the Blitz, but continued his archaeological work. In 1945, he was appointed as one of two city chamberlains for Coventry, and in 1956 was awarded the MBE for his services to the history and archaeology of his adopted city. Two years later, he was killed in a motorcycle accident, but his museum became the core of the archaeological collection of the Herbert Art Gallery and Museum. Thomas Stevens. From the ruins of Coventry's ribbon industry sprang very few successful entrepreneurs, but Thomas Stevens was one. Born in Foleshill, Stephen was a ribbon manufacturer working and living in hillfields when the Cobden Treaty with France in 1860 destroyed the local ribbon industry almost overnight. Innovative and ruthless in pursuit of new markets and new products, within two years he had perfected a way of using a jacquard loom to weave colourful pictures from silk. Some of these Stephen Graff pictures were used for bookmarks and greeting cards, and Stevens even secured contracts to produce specialised products for the Admiralty. By 1875, he was employing 300 people in his new Stephen Graff factory in Cox Street. 
His reputation had spread beyond the UK to the United States in particular and in 1878 he moved to London to manage his growing business. There seemed no bounds to his success but in the autumn of 1888 Stevens was taken ill and underwent an operation on his throat. Complications set in and he died on October the 24th. His work is still popular with collectors around the world. Joe Vickers Inventor and prize finder seems an odd mix of careers, but London-born Vickers could boast of some success in both. The son of a publican, he came to Coventry at the age of 10 and four years later was apprenticed to a watchmaker in the city. During the 1860s, in his 20s, he became a well-known prize fighter in Coventry, good enough to challenge for a world title at seven and a half stone. His longest fight against Jack Lamb in 1869 lasted a gruelling 28 rounds, a total of two hours and seven minutes of bare-knuckle combat. By the late 1870s, he was appearing in trade directories as a watchmaker and shortly afterwards invented the portrait watch featuring images of the royal family, famous actors and sporting personality which became popular over the next two decades. Following his father into the licensed trade he took on the old wheel in Leicester Row turning it into a sporting club and pub but by 1904 Life had turned sour for Joe Richards. His marriage ended, he gave up the pub and two years later was found dead in the yard of the Cranes Inn on Bishop Street after a drinking bout. With the advent of computers and mobile phones, there's a mass of social media that's been opened up to us. So we tend to forget that postcards were the social media of their day, a colourful, informal and cheap way of messaging friends and family. Neil Clark's aficionada uh, and looks back at the golden days when we in Britain were sending over 600 million cards a year. And this is Rebba Sue. Is the writing on the wall for postcards? Now we're able to post our holiday snaps instantly on social media without paying for stamps. It's understandable many of us have fallen out of the age-old habit of writing and mailing cards. But if the digital era does render postcards obsolescent, it will be the end of a long and colourful history, dating back more than 150 years. Indeed, when the very first postcards were introduced in Britain on October the 1st, 1870, costing half an old penny, stamp included, they proved so popular a million were sent in the first week alone. The first postcards were blank, rather than illustrated, with pictures introduced in Germany in 1872, usually drawings of well-known sites or famous national landmarks. In Britain, the first known pictorial postcards were of the Yorkshire seaside resort Scarborough, sold by local firm ETW Dennis in 1894. Photographs, as opposed to drawings, became more common as the 20th century dawned. But what really re revolutionised the format was the introduction in 1902 
of postcards with a back containing room for the message and address and a large image on the other side. In 1904, 613 million postcards were delivered in Britain, with around 7 billion mailed worldwide. At this time, a century before text messaging was invented, a large proportion was still sent to arrange meetings. But as the century progressed and increasing numbers of people could afford holidays, postcards became more closely associated with travel. With the arrival of mass tourism after the Second World War, sending postcards to friends and family became an established holiday ritual. Some found it a chore, but others loved it. During the golden age of postcards, certain artists worked as specialist card illustrators. Louis Wayne became famous thanks to the antics of his comical anthropomorphic cats. Tom Brown's cards specialised in gentle humour. But the most famous of all was undoubtedly Donald McGill, whose saucy pictures with their double entendre captions, many of which would surely be cancelled today, made millions of holidaymakers chuckle. McGill created an incredible 12,000 different postcards, selling more than 350 million before he died in 1962. Typically, the king of the saucy postcard, as he was known, would draw attractive young women, fat old ladies, drunken men and couples on their honeymoon, often in embarrassing social situations or caught up in sexual innuendo. One of his most famous cards, which sold more than six billion copies, was of a bookish young man in glasses and an attractive young woman sitting under a tree. The man asks the woman, Do you like Kipling? To which she replies, I don't know, you naughty boy, I've never kippled. Another, from the Edwardian era, shows a lady in a bathing costume with a large lobster biting her bottom. Oh, Harry, don't, she exclaims, as Harry looks on, bewildered. A card from the First World War era depicts a lady recruiter for the armed forces and a man milking a cow. Why aren't you at the front, my man? asks the recruiter. To which the man replies, "'Cause there ain't no milk that end, miss.' I personally first started collecting postcards, not necessarily the saucy ones, in the 1970s, buying one or two at all the places I visited with my family. While postcards themselves remain relatively affordable, the cost of postage has mushroomed. From October the 2nd, the price of a first-class stamp alone will rise to a frankly eye-watering £1.25. In the late 90s, according to Dow Jones, some 20 million postcards were still being sold every year. Numbers have since fallen to around 5 million a year. All in all, perhaps it's not surprising their use has drastically declined over recent years, and not just in the UK.
As someone recently said, I hardly expected to be able to buy them while I was on safari in the Maasai Mara, but when I arrived at a thriving beach resort for a few days rest and recreation, there was not a postcard in sight. Not at the resort, not in the little town nearby, nowhere. I had fantasised about a pleasant morning by the pool, writing my greetings, so, baffled, I asked the hotel director why a resort of that size had no postcards, and he explained that nobody wants them anymore. In 2016, researchers described postcards as the social media of their day, a quick and informal way of contacting friends and family with a snappier style of communication. Many postcard messages were only a few sentences long, very different from the formal and conventional letter writing of the day. Lancaster University's Dr Julia Gillen says, Investigating the cards, we have uncovered some amazing tales and glimpses into everyday lives. It really was a snapshot of what the people saw and experienced at the time. Postcards were used for all purposes, not just holidays. People used postcards just as they use social networking platforms and text messages today. Wherever they were, they bought, commissioned or created their own artwork on postcards and sent them off in the knowledge they would reach their recipient within hours. Today it's fun to look back at my old albums and also at the cards I received from all corners of the world. And here's the rub. Isn't it better to receive a postcard than to be sent a few holiday snaps on social media? It's precisely because postcards require an effort from the sender that makes receiving them so special. When one drops through your letterbox, you know someone has remembered you on their travels. Also, the golden age of postcards, when hundreds of millions were mailed each year in Britain alone, will never return. But it would be a great pity if they disappeared altogether. Let's face it, we won't be remembering text messages and Instagram posts in 150 years' time, will we? Certainly the only time I now write postcards is when we're on holiday, how times have changed. One of the greatest raids of not only the Second World War, but of all time, was the Dambusters. It's now 80 years since the RAF's myth-making mission to breach the German rule of Valley Dams, and Leo McKinstry has written this article commemorating it, which is read by Bill. Silhouetted against a moonlit sky, the RAF Lancaster bomber raced over the water towards its target. Its resolute crew, piloted by David Maltby, undeterred by either the heavy anti-aircraft fire or the failure of four previous attempts that night by the elite squadron to breach the colossal structure. Sitting at the front of the mighty four-engined aircraft, the bomb aimer waited patiently until the towers of the German dam were lined up in his sight. At exactly the correct distance, he pressed the button to release the spinning cylindrical bomb, which bounced across the surface towards the wall of the dam 
for sinking. Moments later, a huge explosion sent giant plumes of water into the air. Initially, it was hard for the airmen to see anything through the thick spray. But suddenly, the sound of crumbling masonry could be heard, accompanied by the thunderous roar of a swelling flood. A voice shouted ecstatically over the plane's intercom, I think she's gone, I think she's gone. As a huge hole, more than a hundred yards wide, appeared in the wall of the dam, water gushed unstoppably into the Ruhr Valley, Nazi Germany's industrial heartland. Lancaster turned away from the scenes of devastation and began its journey home to England. Maltby's crew had smashed the Moen Dam. For others, in Bomber Command 617 Squadron, led by Wing Commander Guy Gibson, the mission was far from over. There were two further dams to attack that early summer night of May 16, 1943. One was Edda, even larger than the Moen, and well protected by the natural defences of its location deep in a mountainous valley. The geography was insufficient protection against the skill of 617's Dave Shannon and his crew, who made a perfect approach and hit their target with remarkable precision. Tom Aimer, Edward Johnson recalled how, once the wall of the Ada began to collapse, water was absolutely pouring out down this narrow river, causing a tidal wave. He added, it was such a terrifying sight, really. We could see cars being engulfed. Less successful was the assault on the Sork Dam, which suffered severe damage and survived, due to its construction as a massive earthen embankment built around the concrete core. Nevertheless, Gibson 617 Squadron, which had been established just a few months earlier for the specific task of breaching the dams, had magnificently fulfilled the expectations of its creators. The attack on the Ruhr on May 16th-17th was almost certainly the most daring RAF exploit of the war, turning the unit into a legend. Yet Gibson's crews had paid a brutal price for their unparalleled ingenuity, courage and determination. Out of the 133 men who set off from their RAF base in Scampton, Lincolnshire, 53 were killed, a loss rate of 40%, and times the usual level of attrition for Bomber Command operations. Even so, Dam busters, as they would come to be called, inflicted a hammer blow on Germany's industrial and economy. Nearly 3,000 acres of farmland were ruined. 25 bridges were washed away. More than 120 factories were destroyed or damaged. Gas, electricity and water supplies were disrupted. Steel production fell dramatically. The output of armaments and aircraft stagnated, and 20,000 workers had to be diverted from building German defences on the French and Dutch coasts for the repair of the Ruhr Dam. Indeed, 
German Minister of Armaments, War Production, Albert Speer, later admitted raid was disaster for us for a number of months. Just as importantly, the raid provided a tremendous psychological boost to British morale. The heroic tale of the RAF demolishing these structures seemed almost a national metaphor for Britain's increasingly confident struggle against the once impregnable Reich war machine. Next year it marks the 80th anniversary of the Dam Busters raid. It will be an inspiring but poignant milestone, marked, among others, with a concert by the band of the Royal Aircraft Force College at Lincoln Cathedral, in the heart of the country. Admiration for the scale of the RAS achievement, which marked a vital turning point in the fight against Nazi tyranny, will be mixed with respect for the fallen and regret for the passage of time means there are no longer any of the original dambusters with us. The last of this uniquely courageous band, squadron leader Johnny Johnson, died peacefully in a Gloucestershire care home last December, aged 101. I was lucky, with the right crew in the right place at the right time. I think it was a great raid, he said with typical modesty, shortly before his death. And next week, Bill will conclude that heroic story. Now, here's a novel article written by Ben Spencer in the Sunday Times, which he titled as Humanity's Deep Space Ambassador with 1970s Technology and Chuck Berry. And it's read by Sheila. Nearly 15 billion miles away, gliding through the vast void between the stars, a small spacecraft is listening. Even in the depths of space, there is something to hear. A quiet hum is generated by, by the vibrations of interstellar gases. This constant background note, likened by some scientists to a gentle rain, is interrupted by the occasional crash as a flare from the sun bursts through the heliosheath above a light border of the solar system. The machine listening so intently is Voyager 1, humanity's most distant emissary. The spacecraft and its identical twin Voyager 2 left Earth in 1977 to provide a close-up view of Jupiter and Saturn and their moons. That mission was supposed to last four years, yet nearly half a century later these astonishing craft are still operating, transforming our understanding of the universe as they go. The link to one of these distant outposts was feared to have been severed when NASA revealed it had lost contact with Voyager 2. Communication broke down on July the 21st after engineers inadvertently sent a command that caused its antenna to be misaligned by about two degrees. It would have been a tragic end to humanity's link to this 46-year-old craft. The probes, each roughly the size of a small car and moving away from us at more than 30,000 miles per hour, are the only man-made machines outside the solar system, our representatives in deep space. For signals to travel from Voyager 2, which is 12.4 billion miles away, takes more than 18 hours, and a tiny shift in the antenna means the message is Miss Earth. But disaster was averted. After a nervous few days, a heartbeat signal was picked up from the craft. New messages were sent to reposition the antenna. 
The data that reaches us is a scientific miracle. The Voyager craft are the last relics of a distant age of space exploration. They left Earth just eight years after Neil Armstrong stepped onto the moon. The computers have about as much processing power as the modern key fob. Each has about 64 kilobytes of memory run on 8-track tape recorders. A cheap mobile phone has 240,000 times as much memory. The original plan for the mission was to fly past Jupiter and Saturn, but scientists quietly planned to send Voyager 2 on a grand tour of the outer planets, taking advantage of a rare occurrence when the two gas giants, as well as Neptune and Uranus, were on the same side of the sun. Between them, the two spacecraft identified three new moons orbiting Jupiter and four new moons at Saturn. Lightning strikes were seen for the first time on Jupiter and active volcanoes were observed on its moon Io. The first stunning close-up pictures were sent back from Uranus and Neptune. The Voyager mission took off so long ago that it's hard to pinpoint the exact state of our ignorance when the two craft left Earth. But it was not long beforehand that we assumed aliens lived on the surface of our closest planets. Martians were part of a popular discourse. Little green men were thought to be living on Venus and Jupiter. Voyager told us what we now know. There is no life on the surface of the planets. These are inhospitable places. Nothing could survive. But its images gave us the first hint that there might be life swimming beneath the surface of their moons. In 1990, Voyager 1 turns its camera back towards Earth, and from a distance of 4 billion miles, took a picture that became known as the pale blue dot. Voyager has pointed scientists in the right direction to look for possible signs of life, but it also taught us that we will have to search very hard. Out in deep space, the two Voyager craft continue to glide through the universe. They carry identical gold-plated vinyl LPs containing recordings of Beethoven and Bach, Chuck Berry and Blind Willie Johnson, chosen to represent the best of humanity, along with spoken greetings in 55 languages. The record cover includes a diagram showing the precise location of our solar system and how to find it. But space is vast. It will be about 40,000 years until these ships come close to another star system. That will be long after we have lost contact with either vessel. They are expected to stop generating power and cease transmitting home by 2026. But they will continue to fly. And now they are outside the solar system, they are bound to outlast us. In about 5 billion years, the sun will puff into a colossal red giant, incinerating all of us. But the two Voyager craft will continue to glide through the universe, silent ambassadors of what was once planet Earth. From deep space, we come back to something much more parochial, hurdy-gurdy days, with another portrait of life in Coventry at the beginning of the 20th century, read by Alan. In the window of Duke's haberdashery, there were some rings, the blue enamel butterfly rings. So pretty, Grace thought, how she would love one of them. She looked in that window for weeks while she saved her half-pennies earned from taking the washing, backwards and forwards to the gentry for our ma'am and the neighbours. Sometimes her tiny arms ached from stretching them around the wide baskets of washing. Now she had saved three half-pennies, but as the tray of rings was not marked with a price ticket, she did not know how much they were. There were other rings on the tray, 
plain gold rings, which looked very nice, but she liked the blue enamel butterfly rings the best. At last one day, when old Dukes had gone to have his tea, she darted boldly into the shop, clutching her precious three half pennies. "'How much are the blue enamel butterfly rings in the window, please?' she asked Miss Dukes, in a timid voice, barely reaching the counter. Over to the window went Miss Dukes, removing all sorts of articles to get to the tray of rings at the front, which she brought to the counter for Grace to look at. She stood on tiptoe to see them better. How lovely they all looked, she thought, the blue enamel rings shining in the light of the lamp hanging over the counter. The plain gold rings looked lovely too, but she really liked the blue enamel rings the best. Miss Duke says, The blue enamel rings are sixpence each, and the plain gold rings are one and a half pence. Poor Grace's heart sank and her dream of possessing one of the pretty enamel rings faded as she had only got three half-pennies, clutched tightly in her hand. This was three weeks' washing earnings, and sixpence would take such a long time to save, and all the rings might be gone by then. There was a silence while she gazed at all the glittering rings on the tray, and wondered what to do. It was broken by Miss Duke, saying, "'Come along. Do make up your mind, child. I can't stand here all night.' Grace looked up with her pleading look in her eyes, but Miss Duke said, "'Ah, let me see how much money you've got.' Grace opened her hand. "'Oh, you've only got one and a half pence,' sounding a bit like her brother now, only with a higher-pitched voice. "'Well, then, you had better have a plain gold ring. Just try on, on for size.' Grace tried one after the other on her tiny finger. At last Miss Dukes began to lose patience, and suggested she could tie some cotton round and round her finger above the ring to stop it slipping over her knuckle. So Grace gave Miss Dukes her three half-pennies, and came out of the shop feeling like a queen now that she had a gold ring on her finger, and kept stopping to admire it by the shop window. When she got home, our ma'am caught her taking it on off her finger, and holding out her hand to the lighted lamp on the table, to make it sparkle. "'Whatever you got there?' shouted Ma'am, pulling Grace towards her, but she put her hand behind her back and hung her head. Ma'am said, "'Come on, let's have a look,' and Grace slowly put out her hand, showing the ring. "'Well, well, if it ain't a wedding ring. Where on earth did you get that thing, Ma'am?' Grace said in a trembling voice on the verge of tears, "'From Dukes, and it ain't a thing, it's a gold ring.' I bought it with my own money. It was one and a half pence. I saved up for three weeks. Well, you can take it back, yelled ma'am. Take it back, I say, at once. Grace backed away into the corner of the room, hiding her hand and starting to cry. Take her precious gold ring back after all that saving. Oh, whatever should she do? Ma'am rushed across to the door and snatched the coat off the peg, pulling Grace along with her, saying, "'It's no good blatting. Come on!' When they got over to the shop, Ma'am marched straight into Old Duke's, came behind from the curtain. It was his turn to serve. "'Yes,' he said in that austere voice of his, who once Grace was thankful Ma'am was there. "'I'll give you a yes,' shouted Ma'am at the top of her voice. "'Selling a brass wedding ring to a little un for five for one and a half pence. "'I'll have the law on you, I will.' 
Old Dukes looked a bit agitated and said, I didn't serve her, and called his sister into the shop. She seemed as scared of him as Grace was. Did you serve this child with this ring? he said to his sister. Yeah, yes, she chose that one, said Miss Dukes. Well, here it is your ring back. Now give your money back, said ma'am, throwing it on the counter. And after a bit more arguing, old Dukes went to a door and took out a penny and a half penny and gave it to ma'am, and out of the shop they went. I'll give you waste your money on that trash, said ma'am to Grace, who was sobbing her heart out. All her dreams shattered after looking at the window all those weeks and saving up her half-pennies. She didn't know it was a wedding ring, as ma'am called it. She never went into that shop again. It was a crime to ma'am to waste one and a half pence on that rubbish, as we were so poor. It was a struggle enough to live at all. We could only afford the cheapest pieces of meat and bacon bits. At the grocer's just round the corner in Old Street, bits of bacon were put on the counter, which were left over from the slicer. Often these bits were very fat and rind very thick. But Grace used to ask for three pennyworth of bacon bits and had to have whatever the assistant gave her. And more about life in our city over a hundred years ago next week. Most of the World Blind Games in August were held around Birmingham, but one particular event was staged here at CBS Arena in Coventry, and that was the women's goalball match between England and Germany. And of course, Dave was there to bring you this report. Hello, it's a big welcome to the CBS Arena in Coventry for the World Blind Sports and it's goalball today. Hermani, tell me about goalball then. Oh. You, you've had some experience, haven't you? Um, not quite experience, but um, when, when I was down there at the venue, just um, setting everything up, helping out and stuff, I actually got to manage to feel a goalball. Yeah. And um, they are, honestly, as heavy as a medicine ball. Yeah. They are really heavy, very hard, and they have the bells inside them, so, and it's got to be complete silence inside the, street, the uh, arena yeah. so that they can hear absolutely everything that there is no yeah. interruption to the athletes appearing yeah. and um, they actually I've, I've been told they get up to speeds of 60 miles an hour wow. those balls so they actually have to wear breastplates yeah. to protect themselves yeah. so um, again blind sport is absolutely fantastic I'm speaking to Paul Holloway can you give us an idea what's going on at the uh, CBS arena today please yes good morning uh, today it's the IPSA World Games Goalball World Championships Today is the finals day and uh, you've got uh, teams from all around the world. The teams that have got through to the finals are two teams from Japan, a team from uh, South Korea and the ladies China team. The GB women's team are playing uh, in their, their final today, I think they're playing for 7th or 8th. So that, that game is about to kick off. Oh, great. Okay, and the German teams are in black. Yeah. yeah. And the, uh, the Great Britain are in blue. Yeah. Gee, it's like the 1966 World Cup all over again, isn't it? And what a year that was. <laughs> sure was, Paul. Can you tell me the rudiments of the game, please? They've got small, long goal mouths. Yes, basically the game is played on an 18-metre by 9 metre court 
There are two goals each end of the court, the full width of the court. There are three players on each team at each end of the court, and they are all blindfolded. They play with a ball the size of a basketball, that's 1.25 kilo, and has got bells in it. And the object of the game is to throw the ball along the floor against it into your opponent's goal. The ball must touch the floor uh, before the 6 metre line and before the 12 metre line. If it doesn't, it's deemed a penalty. And a penalty means one person from uh, the uh, team who's uh, basically um, caused the penalty has to face the shot uh, from the opponent's team. The game is played in complete silence. So they can hear the ball. So, uh, how long does the game last, Paul? The game lasts two halves of 12 minutes. And that's 12 minutes while the ball is in play. Every time the ball goes off court, the clock is stopped. So, the game typically lasts about an hour. Basically, um, one of the uh, ladies' eyeshades have become dislodged. So, she's asked the ref if uh, if she can replace them. Now they're not allowed to touch their eye shades unless the referee gives them permission. In the uh, term of the game, each team gets four timeouts. Yeah. They have to use if they they have to use one in the first half, otherwise they lose that one. They also get four substitutions. The same same applies if they don't use one in the first half, they lose it. Yeah. Basically, gold ball is about uh, one person from each team taking it in turns to bowl the ball and the three defenders either sitting down in front of the goal mouth or they're on all fours prepared to jump either way to defend the goal Uh, but in the case of penalties only one person defends Aaron will be uh, choosing which player to defend Okay. Right, one player actually defends the goal mouth instead of three. Here we are, she bowls the ball. Oh, he's in the goal! It's the goal of Great Britain! That was a fantastic half half time and it's 4 0 to Great Britain. Fantastic. Congratulations to Great Britain. Fantastic! <laughs> well, uh, thanks a lot, uh, Paul, for commentating on that great game. You did really well. Thank you. I speak to Robert Franklin, who's a listener to Outlook. So, what do you think of the game today? Oh, they're fantastic. I've been to see them on Wednesday, and I thought they were brilliant. I've done it myself, and it's, it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I'm speaking to you, Dan Roper. Yeah. Okay, so okay, so uh, do you play goal ball? I do play goal ball. I'm on the men's squad. Yeah, unfortunately, it didn't go the way we wanted for our results. We've had some really, really good passages of play.
today, but we've just been on the wrong side of some fine margin areas. But um, yeah, we've had a really good tournament. There's definitely things we can take home and stuff like that. But it's been outstanding here today to watch the girls, support them along, and really good display from the girls today. And uh, yeah, looking good, looking real good. Yeah, I'm not that. Old. I understand the granddad to talking to folks. He does indeed, Francis Roper. Yeah, he's um, he's blind. He's got RP, and um, yeah, he loves listening to the talking newspaper. And you know, it's really good what you guys do. Obviously, it needs to be done, and yeah, he respects it. What's your name, please? I'm Sarah Lighter. Okay, so how do you feel about winning the game at 8-2? Oh, it was a great game. Um, I think we kept it really tight in our defence, and we were really patient because you know they're a good team as well. And I'm really proud that we won. Fantastic! Thanks a lot, Sarah. That was amazing game. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you, and that's all from the Women's Gold Ball, England versus Germany, at the CBS Arena Coventry, where Great Britain won 8-2. Thank you very much, and bye for now. That's the last of Dave's reports from the World Blind Games, and brings to a close this week's edition of Outlook. So from the team and me, Nigel Hewin, it's goodbye till next week.